Welcome back to the Meyer Jensen Sports Open Line. Swing it along with the left. That's a grand slam for Yadier Molina. With special reports from Cardinals Camp and the T.R. Hughes Homes Broadcast Center, this is Sports Open Line on KMOX. All right, let's get into the second hour here. we got baseball. We're going to get a little blues talk in here. We're going to maybe do a little NFL at the end. The NFL changed the overtime rules, finally. Those dumbasses only did it for the postseason. Like, come on, guys. I know it's more important in the postseason, right? I mean, I think it's more important in a playoff game to get it right. Just like the NHL, right? The NHL has different overtime rules in the regular season than they do in the postseason. That's fine. You know, I, I, it's not the end of the world, and I'm glad they did what they did. And they did the one simple thing that they should have always done, which is just say that every team, well, I shouldn't say every because that's a weird way of putting it, but both teams get at least one possession in overtime. That's it. That's the only change. And it's simple and it works. We'll get into that if we have time a little bit later on. So I want to go back to the Cardinals and I want to go back to now I want to get to the pitching side of things. I think the Cardinals have plenty of pitching talent. I don't think there's a shortage of ability on their staff. But, and I think this is something that we got to keep an eye on. You know, the old, you know, the old cliche, right? Coaches and players never have been saying this forever. The best ability is availability. And I do think we have some reasonable concerns when it comes to availability for some of the guys. And I don't mean on opening day. Look, you know, as of today, and I know there's still another, what, let's see, today's the 29th, uh, carry the four times two. You know, all I know is a week from Thursday is opening day. So we're, we're you know, nine days away. Most of your rotation is healthy. Wayno's healthy. Michaels is healthy. Steven Matz is healthy. Dakota Hudson's healthy. We know how fast that can change from our experience last year. Which is kind of, I think that's the thing. It's, it's not a fear about what happened last year happening again, at least not for me. It's more about last year's happenings leading to this year having to ask a lot more of guys than they might be able to give you. So we don't know what to expect out of Jack Flaherty for obvious reasons. The shoulder thing is there now. Um, you know, he's not going to be ready for opening day. It certainly appears like April is a long shot, but we'll get, I guess we're getting close, right? We got it. Well, no, you know, we're not going to get more information on that. I think until right before opening day. So we're still another week away from having another assessment of where Flaherty stands. But I think, you know, looking at it with Wainwright, Michaelis, Hudson, and Matt's nothing wrong with those guys. Those are four really good pitchers. But what is fair to ask of them? I think we can ask a lot of Adam Wainwright because he's shown us that he's got a lot to give. He was one of a few pitchers in baseball to pitch 200 innings last year. He had twice as many innings pitched as the next closest Cardinal last year. Again, barring a new injury that doesn't currently exist, I don't think there have to be any restrictions on Wainwright. I don't care if he's 40 or not. He has been operating pretty free and easy here for a couple of years. And you, I think you just let him go. You don't have to manage his workload or anything. Barring, again, barring a new injury that pops up. What's fair to ask of Miles Michaelis? 
And I don't mean I don't I don't even know if fair is the fair is probably not the right way to put it, right? I mean, guys are making a lot of money. It's fair to say do your job every good day and all that. But what's reasonable to expect? Because Miles didn't pitch in 2020 and he only pitched 44 innings last year. Is it reasonable to say, hey, Miles, we need 185 innings from you this year? I don't know. And I think that's the problem. That, that to me, is as scary sometimes as even having bad news is not knowing. I think we have a reasonable bit of expectation for Steven Matz. Again, barring injuries, he's 30. You know, he threw 150 innings last year. He's typically 150, 160 innings a year. He's been pretty healthy for the last four seasons. You know, he, he missed a bunch of time in 2017, but 2018, 2019 was healthy. Last year, healthy. 2020 was 2020. Eh. <laughs> it was just weird. He did not pitch well in 2020, by the way. Steven Matz really struggled then. But, you know, he was fine in 18, 19, and 21 and healthy. But he's never pitched more than 160 innings. I do think it's fair, though, if he's going well to say, ah, you know what? We can take 175 innings from him. There's nothing wrong with increasing that if he's pitching well enough to do it. But then we get to Dakota Hudson. What's a reasonable expectation for Dakota Hudson? Yeah, like I said, you know, same thing with Michaelis, right? Barely pitched in 2020. Only made eight starts in 2020. Hudson did. Only pitched eight innings last year. Can you say, and by the way, Hudson's major league high in innings was 174. He's only had one full season as a starter in the big leagues. So what's a reasonable amount of work to ask? Is is it 180? Is that a lot? Coming off a full year missed? I don't know. So I think that's the part about the pitching that is the easiest to have a concern about. You know, Jake Woodford has never made a full season's worth of starts, and I don't think we're going to ask that. I think once we get past those top four, we're not talking about anybody else making 30 starts. You know, because that that spot will hopefully belong to Jack Flaherty at some point, and even if it doesn't, um, you know, it probably wouldn't be Woodford all season long because you'll get opportunities for guys like Drew Verhagen, for Aaron Brooks, uh, maybe for Matthew Libertor later on in the year, depending on what he shows you down in the minor leagues. You have options like, you know, Johan Oviedo. So they, they have a lot of different, you know, possibilities. And they have a lot of talent. But talent is not the same as proven production. And that's where I think that, that there is some concern. Now, they've got a lot of arms for the bullpen. If they, chose to go, if they choose to go big in the bullpen at the beginning of the year, you got a lot of different looks. You know, you've got veterans in camp. Uh, they just brought in, by the way, we didn't talk about this really, but they brought in Blake Parker on a minor league deal. Uh, you know, he's a veteran guy that's been around a little bit. He's almost 37 years old now. You know, he, he's somebody that I wonder if you're maybe just going to stash in at Memphis just in case you have injuries. Um, but either way, you know, he's in the mix. Did you guys see Dakota, uh, Jordan Hicks yesterday? <laughs> Jordan Hicks was, uh, let's just put it this way. If you follow Twitter at all, if you're a baseball fan, you should be following the pitching ninja, Rob Friedman. He, first of all, he's funny as hell, but it's really educational because he he shows you with video clips and sometimes using overlays and things just how great some of these pitchers are and the things that they're doing being kind of freakish. Well, what what Jordan Hicks did yesterday was a bit freakish. I mean, first of all, 
that fastball was 99 with with ridiculous movement. Like when you're throwing 99 miles an hour, you're not supposed to have a lot of movement, but Jordan Hicks gets it. And I don't know. Again, we can't count on him being healthy because just because of the, the history that's been there. But it's it, he's healthy right now. And you're talking about a guy who's 99 with movement and who, by the way, threw pretty filthy breaking pitch yesterday too. And with his arm speed, if he executes the pitch properly, he should get a whole lot of really sharp break at the end which is what we saw yesterday. You know, Ryan Helsley obviously has the big arm, just like uh, like Hicks does. Not quite the same, but pretty close. The guy that I'm really interested in, the guy that has me curious, is, is Drew Verhagen. And I know I talked a bit about him last week, and I know that, you know, as a, as a starter, who knows, but he's got stuff, you know, I mean, that's something we saw with Miles Michaelis when he first came back from Japan, is that he had stuff. I mean, he was his fastball was, you know, 94, 95. I think Verhagen, he has that same velocity. He's been 94, 95, 96 in the spring. But I think he's got a better breaking ball than Michaelis has. Now, the question will be, does he, does he throw strikes as well as Miles has since he came back? We'll see. But Verhagen it strikes me as a really interesting guy as you know, a multi-inning reliever who may piggyback early in the year when starters aren't going to be ready to go as deep into games as they typically do. You know, you're looking at you know what will probably be at least a nine-man bullpen and maybe a ten-man bullpen at the beginning of the year. I've heard a lot of interviews with managers here lately talking about the two extra spots that they have in the month of April. And they all seem to be leaning toward extra pitching for obvious reasons. With the universal DH, you're not pinch hitting two, three times a game by, by you know, just by habit. So you don't need to have as many guys on the bench on a given day. And with the concerns about pitcher workloads and the short buildup, you want to have as many arms as possible. So guys, we will very, we could very likely be looking at a 10-man bullpen and a 15-man pitching staff for the Cardinals in the beginning of the year, which gives guys like Aaron Brooks, who, by the way, was added to the Major League roster. They brought him back from Korea. But to have Aaron Brooks, Andrew Verhagen, and maybe this, maybe Blake Parker finds a way on there. I mean, the 40-man the, the is full. So, you know, if there's somebody on the 40-man that earns that opportunity aside from someone like Blake Parker, we'll see because you'd have to create spot, a spot for him. And there are ways to do that, by the way. We'll see. But there's a lot to, there are a lot of looks you can have going into um, you know the month of April, and you've got a lot of coverage and a lot of protection there. So, to kind of wrap up this part of the conversation... All those questions that I was asking about Michaelis and Mats and Hudson and Woodford and what like what's what's reasonable to expect from them workload wise could be partially alleviated by having the ten man bullpen, having guys like Brooks and Verhagen that have worked as starting pitchers in the spring, who've worked on a starting pitching load, and having those guys maybe piggyback and having the ability 
Like, again, your bullpen will very likely include Whitley, Hicks, Verhagen, McFarland, Whitgren, Helsley, Cabrera, Gallegos. It's a lot of dudes. And you throw in those other guys, like possibly Brooks and Parker and and all those guys, and you have options to where you can really go to that pen in the first month while the starters are still building up and being able to get deeper into the games. So we can kind of solve two of those problems, or at least partially solve them, with the bigger pitching staff in the month of April. All right, a little more baseball coming up next, and then we're going to dive into the Blues. Vladdy Tarasenko's 500 points, or 500th point from last night. And, you know, obviously now one of the top five point producers in the history of the of the Blues franchise. Actually, he was already fifth, but one of the five to get to 500. Talk about their recent play as well. And uh, we'll do a little football later on, but we'll finish up with just a touch more baseball next up on KMOX. Last thing I wanted to get into today, baseball-wise, and obviously tomorrow night we've got the countdown to opening day, which can be great. We're gonna have uh, we're gonna hear from John Mozeliak on the show tomorrow night. Uh, Adam Wainwright, Paul DeYoung, Andrew Kisner. Obviously, we got more in-depth info on the Albert Pujols news and all that. So uh, tomorrow night, right here on these very airwaves, um, we'll have a good time talking ball. And then Thursday night we have a game. Uh, the Cardinals game, I believe, is at like 5.30 on Thursday. And then on Friday, we'll have it back to a normal show and get back to business as we normally would. And we'll take you into the weekend as best we can with a couple of hours on Friday night. So last thing I wanted to get into, this is more of a bigger picture thing. This is not as much a Cardinal thing as it is um, a, a, a larger trend that does appear to be something that we're going to see with the Cardinals. And that is the trend moving away from the traditional closer. I can't go I can't even I can't even count the number of teams that are saying things this year like yeah, you know, we're not sure we're even going to have a closer. We're going to go with the best matchup in the best spot. And by the way, I'm down with it. I don't know how many teams really stick with it. I think teams and managers tend to get comfortable with certain people and you trust certain people. And as soon as a few games get blown in the ninth inning and questions start to get tough, usually you have somebody go back to the old school. And I I hope that around the league it doesn't necessarily happen. But it is changing the way that we're going to have to value relievers, right? I mean, we've always known that saves are kind of a crappy stat. Like, it counts the same if you come in with a three-run lead and face the eight, seven, eight, nine-hole hitters as it does if you come in with a one-run lead and the three, four, five hitters coming up. Like, you know, the the save can be to- a lot like wins, saves can be somewhat meaningless. I don't know that holds are necessarily any better. And I wonder if there's a way we can do a better job of measuring relievers. Because you look at the Cardinals bullpen this year, I, you know, they they've been pretty clear that at the moment they don't want to name a closer. They just want to play matchups and you know, you figure out the best way to get 27 outs. And if you need Gallegos in the seventh, well, you use Giovanni Gallegos in the seventh. And they do have a lot of guys that have the stuff to get the last three outs. I mean, Gallegos, Cabrera, Helsley, Hicks. I think Verhagen looks like he has that kind of ability to get big outs late in the game. 
Cody Whitley. Like a lot, there are a lot of guys there that have the raw physical ability to get the final three outs of a game. But you know, as we look at the concepts of bullpen usage, teams have obviously started to trend away from one dude who's always going to lock down the ninth and get paid a lot of money to do it. And then, you know, look at the Cardinals as an example to the the idea that argues against paying closers. Who's the last big free agent closer the Cardinals have signed to a multi-year deal? I think it was Izzy. I think it was Jason Isringhausen. They Remember, they signed Greg Holland, and that was a one-year deal with the idea that he would come in and close, and obviously that was just... Bleh. God, I remember being so excited about that. Do you remember that? That news came on opening day, and it's like, oh, my God, they've got a closer. And then it was like, oh, my God, he's the closer? <laughs> it was really bad. And, uh, you know, but the Cardinals have been a team that has not really gone out and spent on a closer. Like, when they spent money on Andrew Miller... The idea wasn't for him to close. It was just for him to be a, a useful outgetter anywhere in the game. And, you know, the Cardinals have had a lot of success developing their own relievers, finding guys out of nowhere. I mean, look, you know, Gallegos was part of the Luke Voigt trade. I mean, he's just a guy that was a part of a deal with the Yankees. He wasn't viewed as a future closer, but he certainly did that job last year. They've had kids come up, you know, Reyes for the first half of last year, Jordan Hicks before the Tommy John uh, go back as far as you want, 2011, Jason Mott wound up taking it over. But, um, you know, before him, it was it was Salas. Remember him? Another prospect that wasn't really expected to be a big guy, but he actually came in and did a nice job for a while. I think Mujica did it for a little bit. You know, they've never really been that traditional, let's go spend a lot of money on a closer kind of team. And that's because... It doesn't often work. It works in some cases, right? There are a few guys in recent baseball history as closers who have stayed the same guy over a long period of time. Mariano Rivera did that. Kenley Jansen has mostly done that. But you look around the National League and and try to find the teams that have a traditional closer setup. You don't really have that in Washington, at least not as far as a proven one. You know, Kyle Finnegan may be the closer, but I think they're going to get a bunch of guys like Sean Doolittle's back and Tanner Rainey and Will Harris. They got a bunch of guys that are probably going to see save opportunities. The Giants said today that Jake McGee is their quote-unquote leading candidate to get saves early in the year, but they've also been open in saying that, you know, guys like Camilo Doval and Tyler Rogers are going to get save opportunities too, so they're not going with a guy. The Padres aren't really set up to go with a guy. It could be Emilio Pagan. It could be Pierce Johnson. It could be Denelson Lamette, who's been hurt a lot as a starter, who's got great swing and miss stuff, and who knows, maybe they think that the bullpen will be how they preserve his arm with a rotation that already has Musgrove, Darvish, Snell, and Clevenger back. But the Padres right now have what would appear to be three or four guys that could get saves. Certainly the Pirates don't have a big money closer, and they're probably going to go with several guys over the course of the year. I mean, like, and I'm I'm just trying to look at this. Like the Phillies have the same kind of setup. It might be Corey Knable, who they just signed. Could be Jose Alvarado. Could be Brad Hand, Sir Anthony Dominguez, Jaris Familia. They've got a lot of dudes that could do it. 
Maybe it's Knable, maybe it's not. The Mets have a closer. Edwin Diaz is their guy. The Brewers have a closer. Josh Hader is obviously their guy. And she's, I mean, you've got Devin Williams right behind him. So you've got two guys that are basically lockdown guys. You look at the Marlins situation. I guess Dylan Floro is the main guy, but I would bet that Anthony Bender and, and a couple of other guys, maybe even the young guy, Zach Pop, those guys are going to get save opportunities. Dodgers just said recently that they're not leaning toward one guy to get their saves. Blake Trinan seems like the guy that would be first in line. Could be Daniel Hudson. Could be the young guy, Brewster Gratterall, who throws 100 miles an hour. Or they just might play matchups. They got a whole boatload of righty and lefty matchups, man. I think they got currently set up to have five lefties in their bull, in their bullpen to start the year. So a bullpen of five and five. So they're not they're not locked in on a guy. Although I would bet my money on trying and being the guy. Colorado doesn't have a closer. They've got three guys that they're going to use. The Reds don't have a closer. They've got two or three guys they plan on using. The Cubs don't have a closer. They've got two or three guys they're planning on using. Atlanta has Kenley Jansen now. And Arizona, I don't think, has a closer, do they? No, they, they kind of do. Mark Melanson's probably going to do the job there. So you take a look around the National League and how many teams have a closer, like a guy that is the closer no matter what. Probably Melanson in Arizona, Kenley Jansen in Atlanta, Josh Hader in Milwaukee, Edwin Diaz in New York. Everything else is up in the air. Everything else. Now, some of those might gravitate towards one guy. And that's just the National League. I'm not even going to do the same thing in that same exercise in the American League, but it's pretty much true there, too. The game's going away from that. And I'm going to be curious to see how many of these teams stick with that or how many of them end up with a more traditional closer usage plan by the end of the year. All right, let's change gears. I want to talk blues. What the hell's going on? Look, last night was better. But what the hell's going on with the up and down performances? And obviously, you want to give some recognition to Vlad Tarasenko. So we'll do all that next on KMOX. Welcome back to the Meyer Jensen Sports Open Live. Swing it along with the left. That's a grand slam for Yannier Molina. With special reports from Cardinals Camp and the T.R. Hughes Homes Broadcast Center, this is Sports Open Line on KMOX. All right, let's start with the good stuff with the Blues, the fun part, and then we'll get to the what the hell part in a minute. But I want to just recognize Vlad Tarasenko. I mean, you know, this time a year ago, we probably didn't expect him to be here, right? We know that he was wanting to be traded and, you know, this offseason, it was one of the big storylines. But, of course, you know, it's hard to get a good deal for someone that hasn't been healthy for two years. You know, he only played 10 games in the 2019-2020 season, only played 24 games last year. So there was a lot to prove. And, well, he's kind of proved it. I mean, he, he's had a good year this year. He's got five game-winning goals, which is, um, you know, right around what he was doing before the injuries popped up. Got 23 goals in 58 games. I don't think he's going to get to 30, but he could. And, you know, you're talking about a guy, you know, in the in the best of his scoring years was 38, 39, 40 goals a year. But, you know, it, it, this is a really positive bounce back year. And, of course, you know, the goal last night, the empty netter gave him 500 points for his career. And I, 
I know I tweeted it out last night after after the Blues tweeted out their uh, congratulations message for uh, Tarasenko. But the only four players with more points in Blues history than than Vlad are Bernie Federko, Brett Hull, uh, Brian Sutter, and uh, and uh, Gary Unger. And it's a pretty good group, first of all. But I think it. What's interesting to me is number one. How much sooner Vladdy could have been on that list in the 500 point group with the Blues if he hadn't had the injuries the last couple of years? I mean, we'd be, we'd be, you know, if if you if he had normal years in 19 and 20, he'd be more like creeping up on 600 points right now as opposed to you know hitting 500 last night. But that's true for a lot of players in their careers when they have injuries. It's just hard to believe that this is where it is, right? That he's 30. Isn't that, to me, that's just such a weird thing to me. And I wonder if, if it feels weird to me that way because the last time he was really healthy before this year was, you know, the Stanley Cup run. And, you know, there was a long time there where on a goals per game basis, Vlad was as good as almost anybody in the sport. And it's good, it's good to see that you know, that the the dangerous guy is back. Yeah, he's not at the 40-goal pace at this point. But you know, he's got 78 career playoff games and 35 career playoff goals. Like, this is a guy that has done a lot of scoring. And when you think about, you know, the draft in 2010 and you picked him in the middle of the first round and you get a guy that has 240 career goals and 500 points, it's a hell of a player. And I, I really hope that, I don't know how it's going to go. You know, you, get, you got another year under contract next year. I don't know if there's going to be another trade request this offseason now that he's been healthy. Um, I would love to see him stay long-term. I don't know what, whether that's realistic or not. But he's been phenomenal. And, uh, you know, again, one of, the, one of the best goal scorers in, in Blues history. And I, I know it's not been a long, it's not a lot, it's not a lot of time. But when you know, when you're looking at the list of the guys that have scored the most goals in franchise history, it's obviously a pretty good list. And Tarasenko is fifth on that list. He's got a long way to go though to catch Gary Unger, who's next. Right? I mean, he's got 241 goals, Vlad does. Unger's at 292. So he would definitely have to stick around beyond next year to get to that point. But, and, and with points too, he's, he's 75 points away from Gary Younger. So it's possible that he could get to that next year, you know, with a good finish this year. And then obviously a good year next year, he could get to that by the end of it, if he's around. And I know, I'm sorry, this is a repeat of my terrible, I wouldn't say terrible, but my lame joke on Twitter last night. Hey, he's only got 573 more points to go to catch Bernie. (laughs) He's got. A, that's a long way to go. If he were to double his goal total, he would still not catch Brett Hull, most goals in in franchise history. But still, I just wanted to recognize Vladdy and and point out. You know, I know it's not been you know perfect the last couple of years. I know it's not even this year. He's he's back, but not quite what he was before. But but close. 
In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I, I'm going to look this up while we're talking. Pretty sure he's going to set a career high in assists this year. Yeah, you know what he is? He, he's at 35 right now. 36 is his career high. So, you know, in some respects, he's still the playmaker, the best the, the playmaker that he's always been. Goal, again, goal pace off a little, but not, not ridiculous. Not a huge change. Now, as far as the team is concerned, I, I, I really wish that, uh, that I had a better explanation for what's going on with the back and forth. Because, again, a month ago, I, I, heck, I, was it, yeah, it was about a month ago. It was the end of February, and I was really liking where they were going. They had they had just beaten Toronto six to three. They had, and that was on the road in Toronto. Uh, they they had a really nice stretch there where they won. I think it was six out of seven games, and a bunch of those on the road out east. And I was really really happy with where they were and kind of the way things were rolling. Billy Huso was playing well. Bennington was actually starting to show some signs, and then March started. And March has just been bleh. At the end of February, the Blues were 32-14-6. and six. They're now 36-20-9. and nine. So, you know, square root of 20 plus 7. No, sorry. Whenever I do math live on the radio, it's just a bad thing. But it's not hard to do this math. They've only won four games in March. And today is March 29th. You know, I mean, you're 4-6-3. and three. In the month of March. And the standings have gotten really tight. And it's not going to get easier, man. You know, next up, we know the Blues are, are going out west for a swing in Canada. Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary. Wednesday, Friday, Saturday this week. So, you know, you've got a little trip there. The, you're, you're creeping up on the end of the year, man. I mean, once we hit April, you know, we're, we're almost there. We're only a month away from the end of the season right now. April 29th, last game against Vegas. And the standings have tightened up in the Central Division. And they've tightened up overall in the West, but especially in the Central. So with the way the Blues have gone, with Minnesota on a hot streak right now, they've won six in a row, eight, one, and one in their last ten. You're now in third place in the division, and you're getting into wild card territory. That, And again, that's where it can get a little scary. So if we take a look at how it breaks down, you're in the three spot now, so you know you're good. You're in the division, you're good, but you're only a point ahead of Nashville. You do have one game in hand on them, but you know again, you're not playing well. This is where it's starting. And a month ago, I would have never thought this was even a question. They were in super strong position in the second spot in the division a month ago, and obviously that's changed dramatically. Now that also goes to point out that. It can change dramatically back in the other direction, too. But it's going to have to start turning soon. Otherwise, this is going to be a grind in the final month. And, you know, I didn't think it was going to be that way. And it's, look, I, I, Bennington's still not playing well. The effort level seems to be varying from day to day. And that's not just my opinion. That's what the coach is saying. And the players keep saying things like, yeah, you know, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like it's there right now. We don't know why. Well, I mean, that's not a good answer. If it's about bad luck or shots not going in or whatever, that's one thing. But when everybody around the team is acknowledging that there just isn't the sense of urgency or they're not, I mean, you had Cairo and Barbashev benched the other night. Like, what's this about? 
I don't get how that happens on a team that has high expectations, that has some veteran leadership, that has a strong personality as the head coach. But again, a month ago, I would never even have thought we'd be having this conversation now. I was good. I was sold. Guess what? I was wrong. Because what we've seen here the last month is just garbage. No reason for that level of um, ineptitude is not a right, not the right word. That's not fair. But just the lack of energy, the lack of of intensity. And again, look at the playoff picture right now. You're probably okay when it comes to the wild card. The last wild card spot is Vegas at 76 points right now. So you're five points up on what would be the last spot in the wild card right now. So you're probably going to be in unless this collapse continues. But boy, do you need to find it before the playoffs start because you got to find a way to be able to get out of the second round. (laughs) You're You're not beating Colorado at all. Any chance of beating Colorado if you're playing anything close to this. You got, first of all, at this point, you'd be playing Minnesota. You're not going to beat them at this point. All right, hang tight. I got a quick couple of thoughts on uh, the NFL finally making an adjustment to their overtime rules. Next up on KMOX. I didn't, I didn't save a lot of time for this because I didn't want to save a lot of time for it, but I do want to mention it. Finally, finally, we have a common sense rule change in the NFL, and it, it should have happened from the beginning of the overtime setup. It should have been this way all the time. It's only going to be in the playoffs, and I'll take the small victory. <laughs> I would rather it just be all the time, but okay, fine. At least we're going to do it, though, for the most important games. And that is a simple tweak to the overtime rules just to allow each team to have the football once in overtime. And I, you know, I I think it's it, it's amazing to me that we get the common response that, well, you do have a fair chance. You just have to come up with a stop. Like, no, it's not a fair chance. First of all, the entire game is slanted toward offense. And if you think it's a fair chance to, quote-unquote, just go play defense, then why does nobody defer on the coin toss in overtime? If it were fair, if it were an equal chance at winning the game, wouldn't somebody at some point not take the ball first? No, they take the ball first because it's a clear advantage. It's a clear advantage. You could ha- you can win the game without every- without your defense ever seeing the field. That's an advantage. There's a reason that zero teams ever have have decided to kick off in overtime when they win the toss. There's a reason for that. Because it's an advantage to get what could be the only crack at scoring points. This is such a simple thing. Both teams get the ball once. And by the way, both teams now have the chance to just play defense. What we want, it's to me, it's not about saying that anybody was done wrong. Like I'm not saying that Buffalo got hosed 
Because the rules were the rules, and they all know the rules before overtime starts. So, you know, the old cliche, hey, win the game in regulation if you don't want to worry about overtime rules. That's All right, so that's fine. I'm not saying anybody got hosed. But I am saying that it just makes sense to make the opportunities equal in overtime. You know, when the game is 100% absolutely on the line. Not hard. It might lead to a few overtimes going longer than you'd like. I think we all understand that, you know, player safety is a big deal. That games that go overtime, like the longer a football game goes, the more tired the players get, the more tired you are, the more prone you are to injury. Like, I think we all know that that's real. But I also think that the players would like the opportunity, the an equal opportunity to win the game. And, you know, again, not fixing it for the regular season is not the end of the world. I'm glad it's done for, for, the, for the postseason. I do wish it was the regular season, but I don't know why the most common sense thing in the world took us this long to get to. But it's there, thankfully, and we can roll from there. You guys have yourselves a great night. We've got the countdown to opening day show coming up tomorrow night. We're counting down, by the way, to Kegs and Eggs, which is back this year. Check it out at KMOX.com coming up on opening day. On Thursday, we got Cardinals baseball Friday back to sports open line here on KMOX. KMOX.